Hey, 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 guys, this is Victor Moreno welcoming you to this week's edition of Cult Following Extra. What is the extra? Well, folks, every other week or so, we're going to try to clue you in with what's going on with the best of television, upcoming new releases, just a little bit of catch up on what's going on in the world of media around us. Uh, We're excited to bring it to you. Uh, This is a companion podcast to Cult Following. Uh, As many of you guys know, I review films. You can see those reviews over at cultfollowing.co before they come out. Uh, So this is just a way of, like, if you don't have time to catch up on the latest film reviews, uh, the latest trailers that are dropping, I'm just going to give you kind of my reactions and uh, thoughts on some of the movies that are coming out this weekend. So that way you're driving on the way to work, or you're driving back, and you'll be like, hey, Victor, uh, what's something going on in theaters this weekend that's worth seeing, or what's hitting Netflix that looks pretty interesting, uh, or this trailer just hit, what do you think? You know, it's just a companion to those, uh, so that way there's some cool content every week. And uh, we're excited to bring it over to you here at Cult Following, right? Exciting, no? All right, so I need to get this out of the way, folks. <laughs> the Fast 9 trailer, the F9 trailer just hit. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, Fast 9, F9, it's the uh, latest in the never-ending, never-ending saga of the Fast and the Furious films. And basically, folks, what we've got here is Vin Diesel and The Rock have essentially split the franchise. You've got the Fast and, the Fast and Furious Presents films are going to be the, uh, the Rock's movies, uh, you know, the Deckard Shaw movies. And then we've got Fast Saga, which essentially, I'm guessing, are going to be the uh, the Vin Diesel and crew films. Um, I don't really know how I feel about that. I, I think, sincerely, that for the most part, these movies work because of the chemistry uh, that all these characters have together. But hey, who am I to argue with The Rock? But I just got to get this out of the way, man. Uh that fast F9, the Fast Saga trailer, looks fucking ridiculous. Um, I don't mean like fucking ridiculous as in, dude, that looks fucking ridiculous. Oh my god. So ridiculously dope. No, guys. It looks fucking ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's kind of weird because you realize the Fast and the Furious movies essentially started as this kind of like almost humble ripoff of Gone in 60 Seconds, you know, the original and the Nicolas Cage film, or maybe they were in production at the same time, but I'm just saying, this is a movie about street racing. You know, you live your life a quarter mile at a time. It's a stupid, cute movie, you know? And, like, it's relatable, you know, on on that sort of surface level. Rewatch Fast and the Furious 1, and then watch Hobbs and Shaw, and try to reconcile how these movies are supposed to be part of the same franchise. You've got one that's about, like, you know, this little crew of street hustlers who race cars for money. And now you've got an international hacker who has hired Vin Diesel's absentee brother in eight films, who's now an international assassin, master thief, apparently can jump off buildings, 
to destroy his family and do some mega hacking. Not to mention the fact that Idris Elba was basically a super villain in a Marvel-adjacent universe where there was no fucking gravity in the last Fast and Furious film. How does that make fucking sense? I think it's ridiculous if you think about the fact that John Cena and The Rock... Don't get me wrong, folks. I love pro wrestling. If you talk to me about pro wrestling, I can talk your ear off from ECW to WWE to WCW. I am an encyclopedia of professional wrestling. I love it. I have a Santo poster in my office I am looking at right now as I deliver this to you. But my God, man, it's so funny to me that like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, WWE films was making movies like The Marine with John Cena or The Condemned with Stone Cold Steve Austin or 12 Rounds with Randy Orton. And you look at these trailers now, and I invite you guys, I invite you to look at these trailers in comparison to the trailer for F9, The Fast Saga. And I will tell you, folks, these movies are at the same level. I don't know what it is where we're at now, but folks, any WWE movie from the mid-2000s, if it was released in theaters today, would easily make $100 million. The trailer for The Condemned looks just, just as nonsensical as this F9 trailer. And let, let, let me get this out of the way, folks. Uh, they spoil this entire movie in this trailer. I think it's coming out in April. This is a Super Bowl trailer. They're trying to bring up buzz. But this movie gives, ev this trailer gives everything away. Not to mention the, you know, obligatory pop at the end where we see Han from the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift alive and well, just walking in eating pistachios like nothing's happened. Let me put you, key you into this mentality, people. Han died at the end of Tokyo Drift. They made three sequels out of order just so they could keep using this character because they couldn't think of a plausible way to bring him back from the dead. So we'll just do three prequels and call them sequels. Now we're just like, yeah, he's back. Um, I have no problem with that. These movies are essentially comic book movies at this point. But Jesus Christ, it's going to be a little hard to say, hey, uh, you know, where's Brian if we can bring Han back from the dead? And, you know, this is just telling you folks at some point we're going to get a CGI uh, Paul Walker in these films. It's going to be weird as fuck or they're going to recast. Either way, strange, strange, strange. Weird choices being made all over. This movie will probably make just as much money as uh, Hobbs and Shaw did. I, You know, I'm going to watch it because I'll review it. And I'm sure it's stupid, but like there's just a there's a lot of scenes in here that like we're just getting used to seeing stupid shit and taking it at face value. Like there's a scene in this uh, trailer where. uh uh, they're driving down a collapsing wooden bridge, and all I can think of as an adult man, not a teenager, is I want those tires because they have the best traction in the fucking world. Because, holy fuck, a collapsing bridge and your car is still rolling on it? There's a thing called gravity. I mean, and there's inertia. These are separate laws of physics, folks, that go hand in hand together, but Jesus Christ... You would fly off the bridge. 
Unless those that thing's got like fucking cleats on it. It doesn't make any sense. Uh but it looks cool. There's a scene where they have a rocket ship uh engine strapped to a Pontiac Fiero and it looks like the rocket car from the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Exactly like it. You know, it's just, hey, fuck it. Let's go for it. Because, you know, it's weird taking these things from, like, obscure movies and we're just finally like, put it in a mainstream movie. It'll sell. It's totally normal. It's just strange. It's strange seeing it there. It's strange seeing, hey, I'm going to drive a Shelby GT500 off of the cliff. And then, my God, a magnet stealth bomber is going to pick it up. But I can still chase it. By using a fucking giant canister of NOS and a hook to catch it. Like, you know, I, I th- this is shit I expect to see in a Jumanji movie or like a Marvel movie. But, you know, there's just physics don't work anymore. This I noticed this when we watched uh, Hobbs and Shaw. It's like, okay, nothing in this movie makes sense according to physics anymore. And, you know... It's weird that there's the Triple X movies, which were did this kind of ridiculous shit all the time. Triple X to the return of Xander Cage has this whole scene where, uh, you know, Vin Diesel skis down the side of a fucking forest, uh, you know, with a snowboard, no snow. Now that would be totally at home in this movie. Fucking Triple X one is close is more closely tied to reality than the Fast and the Furious films. Okay, guys? That's all I'm saying. I had to vent because, you know, I don't care. Movies are fun escapism, but sometimes you just see something and you're just like, brain, no work. This is stupid. Like, my God, what? What? And why are you giving everything away? Like, are you still going to pop when you see Han in a theater? I would love to know because, you know, ahead of time it's happening. You've seen every set piece in this movie that doesn't come out for three more months. You know, like, eh. you know, is, is this movie's plot really that thin? You know, and I, you know, I love John Cena, but like, he's got to feel weird making the sub, the Marine level movie thinking like, fuck, if they just waited like 10 more years, I'd already be a star or I don't know. I don't know. It just popped in my brain so i'm i'm just gonna let that lie right now but uh i'm gonna talk about a couple other things just on this silly boat um the rhythm section comes out this weekend uh i saw this movie it's directed by um reed morano who uh she's a girl don't get confused with the name but like uh yeah so she directed a couple of cool movies that you've probably seen um they're both on Hulu. Um, one is the one with uh, Elle Fanning and uh, Peter Dinklage, the end of the world movie. And um, the other one is the Skeleton Twins with Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader. And, uh, you know, uh, this movie is produced by Eon Productions, who are the people. Uh, it's Albert Broccoli's old company. It's now it's owned by his daughter, Barbara. These are the people who all they do is make James Bond movies. And uh, you guys know No Time to Die, Bond 25, comes out in a few months. And this movie desperately seems like an excuse to try to start like a girl Bond franchise. Like in the same mold of the of the uh, Daniel Craig Bond movies. Because it's kind of got that same grounded, gritty feeling at the beginning. 
And uh, it has Blake Lively in the lead. And all I keep thinking is Blake Lively. Like, I, you know, and I'll, I still, I'll say this, man. I respect Blake Lively. She makes interesting uh, movie choices. I really enjoyed A Simple Favor. Uh, she does seem like she probably wasn't the first choice for this movie. And half the time, I think I'm looking at Riley Keough in this movie. Um, but... You know, she's the best part of this, playing kind of like this fragile girl whose family is killed in an airplane bombing. And so in her grief, she becomes um, like a prostitute working at a brothel in London. She gets found by a reporter named Proctor who tells her, hey, no, actually, actually, that plane was bombed. And the European government is keeping a secret. And Blake Lively is playing a British person as a stylistic choice. And her accent just isn't there. This is one of those things like when Keanu Reeves would like do movies like The Devil's Advocate and throw in an accent where you really don't need it. So he's a Floridian with the heaviest southern accent. Whereas I think a Floridian doesn't really need an accent, but he just went full bore with it. Um, yeah, so that's... It's an interesting movie. Uh, she finds out through Proctor that there's this guy named B who's been tracking the real bomber, a guy named Reza. B is played by Jude Law. So eventually they strike up a La Femme Nikita slash Hannah relationship where he's kind of like training her to be an assassin. And there's an information broker named Sarah, played by Sterling K. Gray, who uh, plays um, Michael B. Jordan's father in uh, Black Panther. You know, uh, T'Chaka's uh, brother. Um, he's a good actor. I really like him in a lot of stuff. Um, uh, it really feels nebulous. This movie's pacing is glacial. Glacial. Um, I was dozing off, like, in the first hour. Um, there's a, re- a few really cool set pieces. Other than that, it is very hard to quantify where they were going for this movie the movie's written by the guy the book of this film is based on the rhythm section because god knows that title is awful so it had to come from a book but all i can think is better title might have helped that does happen folks and overall all i can say is um it's worth a watch i would probably wait for uh streaming on this one uh the other movie coming out uh this weekend is Gretel and Hansel with Alice Kriege as the witch. Um, they did not screen that for critics. That's basically red flag for this movie is a piece of shit. Um, which I'm sure it probably is. It's getting dumped in the middle of January. Um, I'm not really going to go out of my way to see it. Maybe we'll throw up a review if we get around to it. Um, the first big release of the year comes out next Friday, and that is Birds of Prey and the man. The God, what's the fucking title of that movie? Birds of Play and the Glorious Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. I'm just gonna call it Birds of Prey, um, and I'm sure I got the subtitle wrong. Um, I we're gonna go see that on Wednesday. We had a press screening on IMAX. Uh, we'll have a review of that up on CultFalling.co. All I can say is, without question, um, I've heard a lot of good buzz about it. Uh, Margot Robbie is like (laughs) Californian coming in. Margot Robbie 
is extremely good as Harley Quinn in things. She's pretty much the um, Christopher Reeve to Superman in that role. It would be really hard to see somebody else do a better job with it. Um, it's directed by Kathy Yan, who uh, who uh, Margot Robbie hand chose to direct this movie. She shepherded this thing all along, and it's kind of like a uh, weird pinky violence girl gang uh, glitter punk thing going on with this movie. I'm excited to see it. There's an article up on co right now where we break down, hey, if you're going to pre-order your tickets, uh, this is where you go to get the best swag. We did that for It Chapter 2, I think. Yeah, it worked out really well, so we're going to do a lot more of those moving forward. Um, just to catch up on a few other things, uh, last week we saw The Color Out of Space, uh, Richard Stanley's new uh, new uh, Lovecraftian existential horror film uh, from the producers of Mandy. I really liked this movie. If you get a chance to watch it, I highly recommend it. If you are in Phoenix, it's still playing uh at a lot of venues i think alamo uh harkins and amc are all still showing it maybe film bar i'm not totally positive there uh you can find showtimes on google let me google that for you um it's i would just get it on vod because then you can keep it and just keep rewatching it which is what i do for like 90 percent of the movies uh that i have the opportunity to do it for uh vod is the best thing you can have going um it's really good uh like I said, we have a full review up on cultfollowing.co. Nicholas Cage is great in it. Directing is cool. Um, like I said, it probably drags a bit and it could be a little bit tighter. But, uh, you know, uh, you, you can kind of blame, uh, you can kind of give uh, Richard Stanley some slack on the self indulgence since he hasn't directed something in a while. And all the, uh, there's a lot of uh, Easter eggs and homages to things. So it's fun. It's fun. Um, just kind of on that same Lovecraftian uh, tip, let's get into TV really quick. Um, uh, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Chapter 3, just dropped on Netflix. Um, I've watched the whole thing. It's really good. If there's a show you're going to binge right now on Netflix, I fully suggest getting in on that action. Uh, there's tons of references to other horror movies, as they love doing on that show. Everything from, like, uh midsummer to uh the witch you know and, and it's all over the place and it's really good they really leaned hard into the riverdale crossover stuff um i will say um it does not feel as good as the last two seasons i there's a lot of questionable choices in terms of character direction you know like uh i i just think it's odd um that they brought this kind of Ambrose Prudence relationship all out of the blue. Like, you know, it seems very like my true love when, um, you know, I, I didn't get the vibe that, uh, Ambrose was pansexual in the first two seasons. I kind of just thought he was a gay character. I don't know if that like undermines, uh, the character's portrayal, you know, and they did the same thing with Zelda this season too. Spoilers, I suppose. But, um, you know, I mean, like I said, I don't, you know, I, I I like representation. I just kind of think, like, if you're going to go with one route, it's cool to stick with one route rather than kind of, okay, that character's gay, now they're straight for some reason. It, it does seem that way. I mean, it's you could say it's just fluid sexuality, but it's just not addressed anywhere. It's just something that I found a little baffling. Um, 
you know, I, I feel like there, you, you could have done that with um, other characters and just kind of kept that same relationship dynamic, but I feel like they didn't have anything for Prudence to do, so it's like, let's make her Ambrose's uh, kind of boyfriend, I suppose. Or girlfriend, my bad. Um, speaking of good genre shows, um, you really should be watching The Outsider on HBO. Dude, this show is so good. Um, the only way I could describe it is kind of like this, uh, like slow burn. What if Clayface was a serial kill? Clayface from Batman was a serial killer in the real world kind of thing. It's really interesting. Um, you're gonna have to have some patience with it. It is a very slow burn. We're four episodes in right now. It's really good. Um, I watched Messiah on Netflix. Uh, this is a show that is produced by Mark Burnett and Roma Downing. They're married, but like you might know Mark Burnett because he produced stuff like Lucha Underground and um, The Apprentice and Survivor. Um, but him and his wife do a lot of this uh, like Christian faith-based like entertainment that I find irritating and stupid, you know, like the God's not dead kind of kind of stuff. That's like, okay, man, like what the fuck, who is this for? So this one, weirdly enough, ended up on Netflix probably because of qual the quality is good. Um, it sort of runs along the lines of what would happen if the second coming of Jesus Christ happened today. And this guy, he shows up, and he guides these refugees from Syria to the border of Israel and Palestine. And people start, like, thinking he's Jesus. But without saying Jesus, they're, like, the Messiah or a rough Arabic translation of Messiah. Mess I, I want to say Messiah, but it's not. I wrote it down, but I can't really read my writing, folks. I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> But I will say it's really interesting. It has Michelle Monaghan as a uh, as a government agent who's kind of like keeping tabs on him, thinking he might be like some kind of um, terrorist. So they kind of lean into it really interesting. It kind of loses steam when he makes his way to America way too easily and uh, helps his family survive a hurricane in Texas. And then this cult kind of starts building up around him. Other than that, it's actually pretty good. Um, I suggest watching it. Don't binge it. Like, try a few episodes, see if you dig it. Um, I'll also say, if you're going to watch anything on HBO besides The Outsider right now, season one of Watchmen was the best thing on television last year. Oh, my God. Uh, and it's the only season. And it's one of those rare television moments where you're going to say, you guys, this is so good. It's better than the film it's a good companion to the comic book and we don't need to do any more of this boom done one and done um this is kind of the thought process i had with mr robot which i haven't finished the last season of mr robot yet maybe i'll talk about it next week if i get around to it but like it's like westworld where season one and two were both really good and i hope to god season three hits that quality level or they should have just stopped like, I'm really shocked Westworld has kept it going. So let's hope season three is it's good with its future jump. Um, and I'm really excited for Altered Carbon, which comes out on Netflix at the end of the month. 
uh, I think on the 21st or the 29th. And uh, I think Lock and Key from Joe Hill comes out on Netflix next Friday. So I'm sure we'll talk about that on the podcast with Jasper soon. Um, Other than that, that's pretty much all I wanted to hit on. The Super Bowl is this Sunday, so I'm sure we'll have a lot of commercials to talk about. I will hit on this one thing. Um, If you guys have seen the Walmart Super Bowl commercial that they probably spent the gross domestic product of a small fucking country to make because it has fucking every goddamn licensed movie character ever in it pretty damn much. It has uh, the pugs in the alien, the coffee aliens from Men in Black. It has R2-D2, C-3PO, the Millennium Falcon. It's got all the characters from the Lego movie. It's got Buzz Lightyear. It's got Bill and Ted, two Bills, which this is probably what Bill's going to look like in Bill and Ted Face the Music this summer. And it looks really good. The de-aged Bill, like, freakishly enough, works. Um, But my favorite whole scene in this thing was, like, seeing the aliens from Mars attacks with Kang and Kodos from The Simpsons flying in the background. I highly recommend checking out this commercial. It's just funny. It's fun and funny. How rare does that actually happen? But God, you know, for hyping up that we shop for you and you pick it up service, they spent a lot of money to make that happen. Um, other than that, this is what we'll tell you. Uh, if you are free this Sunday, come on out and hang out at Retro Rewind at the Thunderbird Lounge in Phoenix. It's Super Bowl Sunday, but we're going to be slinging tapes playing some funny shit on our VCR in the patio at Thunderbird. Uh, and Valentine's Day weekend, join us for cult classics over at Super Saver Silver Cinemas. And I swear to God, guys, it's awesome. We're going to be doing Bram Stoker's Dracula. We have some limited, limited Valentine's Day VIP packages. And you guys, uh, we, we're limited to four. We only have two left. For $100, you get two... Two admissions, you get an event print, you get two t-shirts, and you get a box of chocolate as well as a bottle of Francis Ford Coppola red wine, probably a claret. Uh, get it? Francis Ford Coppola directed this movie, so we're slinging his wine, and it's a romantic thing. If you are not a romantic person, people, dudes, you know, it's hard to, like, think of what to get. You know, you're like, I'll go to Lush or I'll go to Sephora and get, like, a gift thing. This is an easy way for you to go with your lady, have a fun night out, and then you have some booze, finish it off, you know, in the best way possible, and you don't really have to do much planning. We did all the planning for you. Tickets are available at cultclassicsaz.com. Now, that's all I wanted to talk about this week, but we'll throw this in. Uh, I have a lot of interviews I've done over the years uh, with people. For cult classics and cult following. So we're going to start throwing some of these in here as extra content. Because we just couldn't find a spot to fit them in on cult following. So uh, two two and a half months ago, we did Killer Clowns from Outer Space at Cult Classics. And we had special effects artist Kim Bailey come in and talk about working on that film. He designed the popcorn gun. Is a great story about that popcorn gun almost killed him. And on top of that, we have a great interview with live Q and a from our audience with writer Charles Chiodo of the world famous Chiodo brothers who designed 
these great characters as well as critters and so many of your favorite 80s monsters he's answering questions about practical special effects whether there was ever a plan to do a killer clowns from outer space sequel and there was a chance to do a tv show all of that is in this interview that i'm going to play right now at the end of my talking so you can have some fun movie related content and thank you for listening to the first rejiggered re-engineered retooled episode of cult following extra we hope to bring this to you every other week or as the occasion fits stay tuned because next week i'm sure we'll have an, an all-new episode of cult following and stay tuned from the cult following network because we have view and speed review i'm sure those guys have got some great taste coming up on some obscure fun movies so uh once again this is victor moreno coming at you from cult following extra Stay tuned, listen to this uh, interview coming up right up after I'm done chatting, and we will see you next time on Cult Following and Cult Following Extra. Goodbye. A third of what I've done in the industry, everything from Star Trek The Next Generation to Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Mission Impossible, Alien Resurrection, Stargate, uh, Space Above and Beyond, uh, Mission to Mars, and The One, it just keeps going on and on and on. But one of the ones that I'm most proud of is working on uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And just remember, uh, in space, you cannot eat ice cream. <laughs> if you do recall the original poster, that was something that came up. Uh, Charlie, Ed, and Steve all say hello. I was just talking with Charlie about a few minutes ago, and tonight, we are actually going to be able to talk to Charlie on the phone. Um, he, he basically sends his regards and he says that for some reason or another, um, thank goodness, Killer Clowns, had, after 30 years, has never been as big as it is now. So, um, yeah. Awesome. So, go ahead. All right, so first I should ask you, so as you've heard, Kim has had a very distinguished career. So why don't you tell us how you got involved in working on Killer Clowns from Outer Space? Oh, absolutely. Um, I knew Gene Rizzardi, who owned a company called, and still does, a company called Model Works. Gene needed some kind of crazy monster like myself to come in and do electronics and to build some very special props. So Gene was responsible for building the cocoon gun, the little pistol, and yes. I was firmly responsible for building the popcorn gun. All right. So um, now, of course, everyone, you kind of know, if you've ever tried to throw a piece of popcorn, it travels about two feet and then hits the floor. Well, uh, <laughs> Steve wanted it to fly from here to the rear wall. So it was my job to figure out how to do that physics. So I literally built the world's first air cannon to fire popcorn. And sure enough, um, there was a little story about that. That actual prop damn near killed me. Uh, and I'm not kidding. We had, I pressurized the chamber for, for testing and one of the seals gave way, and the ha one half of it struck me in the chest, and the other part flew up and over the, the rafters and was caught by one of our other coworkers, Gordon Forker. Literally landed his hand like a football, and to this day, everyone goes, that movie damn near killed you, and I go, yes, it almost did, so. <laughs> wow. So you were responsible primarily for building like uh, props like the yep. popcorn bazooka. What, um, what is your favorite scene in this movie, aside from the one that almost killed you there, <laughs> in terms of one that you and your uh, fellow coworkers worked on? Uh, the one when John is actually being used as a puppet 
And of course, the clowns like he starts talking, and then he and, and John, of course, John Warner falls off to the side, and then he goes like this. That was a brilliant move by by Steve. Um, there's so many like little pieces in the movie that uh, at the time we we were just thinking of like this would look great, and surprisingly enough, as campy as it is, it came off wonderfully. Like the 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 cotton candy uh, cocoons. We thought that that wasn't going to work at all, and it wound up being one of our favorite pieces. For those of you who are going to see this movie, pay close attention to the scene he was just talking about because John actually doesn't blink that whole scene when he's the hand puppet. We were re we watching this, and I was like, he's not blinking. That's really a little clever touch. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, working with the Chiodo brothers on this movie, uh, do you have any recollections uh, in dealing with them directly you might want to talk to before we get them on, get Charles on the phone? Absolutely. Both Charlie, Ed, and Steve are, they're amazing people. They're unbelievably creative. Uh, they were responsible for all the illustrations. Uh, and actually, I think it was uh, Charlie, no, it was uh, Steve, who was actually listed as the production designer for Killer Clowns. It was one of the first pictures in my career, because it was 1985, so I was like 25 years old. And um, it was a very small crew, considering it was a $2 million picture. And we got a chance to see them pretty much every day. And rather than them as the producers being like you would figure a Hollywood producer, they were more like us. You know, roll up your sleeve, get your hands dirty, you know, you, you filled with paint. Uh, you didn't care. We were all doing something that we truly loved. And I, I really wish that I could share that feeling with you because that was a magical time in Hollywood where there was no status. There was absolutely, you know, no elitism whatsoever. The guy who swept the floor was just as important, if not more important sometimes, as the guy who directed the picture. And we all came together as a family to be able to create art because there were no limits about what we could do back then. I think that's a really cool anecdote. Does anybody have a question for Kim directly before we call Charles? All right, shoot, come on up here. Or okay, talk loud. Right, talk loud. Oh, who's inside the Gosh, you know, I that I don't know Charlie would, because he was there. <laughs> but I'll tell you that um, they were tall. The the actors that they played, they were they were big guys. Um, I think the one guy I met was like six six. Yeah, he was a tall dude. I mean, granted, we did have a couple of people who were vertically challenged, but um, the majority of them were big guys uh, and. Really for us, we didn't really, unless we were on set, we didn't get a chance to interact with the actors. It was more makeup effects that would do that, so. All right, we got one more on the side here. All right, so I have kind of two questions. Sure. Wasn't the uh, popcorn gun the most expensive prop to do in the movie? Uh, you know, you know that's, a, that's a tie, actually. The popcorn gun, um, from what I can remember, only cost about $300 to build. It wasn't a lot. Now, that's not including painting it, and, you know, but for me, my time, 
um, and all the components. It was more the cocoon gun, the one that I that Gene Rosardi actually made. He and I both worked on that that piece because to make it do what it did, I had to build the electronics that went inside to make it winky twink, right? And to be able to make it move, we used one of the. It was brand new at the time. Uh, Skill makes a little red screwdriver that bends in the handle. So we took that as the me as the mechanism, and. Uh, he did the patterns, and then I did the electronics, and then he put all that stuff inside the cocoon gun. So between the two of them, um, they were both just as complicated, but I think the popcorn gun, or the bazooka, as you say, mm -hmm. was probably the most dangerous. <laughs> all right, well, I think we should probably call Charles here. You guys excited? Yeah. Just check. Charlie, answer the phone. Hello, who is it? Hey, Charlie, it's Kim. Say hello, everybody. It's Charlie Kieto. Hey, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Kim. Uh, are you alone or what? No, I'm not alone. You know me, Charlie. I'm never alone. <laughs> He's alone with about 135 people. Oh, hi, everybody. So. Do, you, do any of you guys have a question for Charlie? I mean, this is the guy. This is the producer, creator, you know, the founder of Killer Clowns. So let's right take a there. look right there, girl. Hi. Um, my name's Nicole. I was four years old when I first saw the movie, and a question that I've always had was, like, what is the purpose of the cotton candy? What purpose does it serve? Like, Can you hear that, Charlie? Um, yeah, what, what? Repeat the question. What okay. purpose does the cotton candy serve to the clowns in the movie? It's, Did you, did you get that, Charlie? What were they using the bodies for? Were they ingesting them, eating them for food? The concept. The concept. The concept of killer clowns was to basically utilize everything that was a relevant carnival and, and, uh, and the clown circus world and just turn it on its head. So cotton candy was the obvious one in the popcorn. The cotton candy, we thought, because it's... Uh, you know, you watch the way they make cotton candy, it spins like a web. And uh, we thought it was perfect that the the, uh, the clowns would uh, somehow devise a gun that could shoot, you know, cotton candy webs and and, and, uh, and uh, capture its vi his victims. So basically what we were doing is uh, we had the idea that the clowns, what would they do? Like did they, uh, the process is always, okay, you have a funny gag, and then you, you, know, you brainstorm and you find out, uh, you, you sort of bounce ideas off each other, what could it possibly do? Well, you know what, we thought that, well, maybe it's dissolving them and it's breaking them down into some kind of an ooze or a liquid, possibly <laughs> blood, possibly something worse, you know, just, you know, a coagulated, uh, you know, uh, thing of, of, of human, you know, tissue and organs. And we figured that, you know, that what would be a capper on that? How do you show that? Well, we figured that, well, maybe they would, uh, you know, they would eat it. 
better still, if it was liquid, they would drink it. And what better way? Of course, you say, okay, they'll use a straw. But then the next the next step would be, well, what's better than a straw? Well, what clown use? A, you know, a, a crazy straw. <laughs> And that's how, that's the thought process. The brothers, you know, Stephen and Edward, we bounce these ideas. We build on, uh, you know, what we do, uh, you know, what, we, uh, what we'd like to see. And we come up at the end with something that was unique and a lot of fun and creepy, that the clowns were sucking the remains of human victims through a crazy straw. <laughs> I'm sure it was delicious. All right, since you want, since you asked that question, I think you were in the cocoon. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we have another question. The gentleman over here. Yeah, it, I heard that Disney bought Fox, but Fox was gonna do a sequel to this movie. Is there any possible way, with the same kind of budget, you guys could? Maybe make a sequel, maybe like four and a half million, and make it awesome like you did. Back did you in the day. Did you get that, Charlie? Killer clown sequel. No, I, I don't see it's the, the sequel question. Uh, even uh, the the buzz and I have been working on a sequel um, for thirty years, and uh, <laughs> you know, basically, um, instead of going now uh, Killer Clowns Part Two, uh, so much time has passed. We're just skipping into Killer Clowns Part Three, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, when we were thinking that, you know, should it be a, um, a, a, a sequel or a reboot? So we came up with we'll make it a, a, a reboot. Um, awesome. uh, where we would uh, introduce, you know, the, the characters we know, to, we know and love. Um, we were going to start with Grant Kramer and introduce him. And then he would introduce a new ensemble cast of characters that could carry on the tradition. Very much in the way that the Star Wars... bringing in, uh, you have Han Solo, you know, and, and uh, Princess Leia bringing in, you know, the new, uh, the new guys who are going to pick up the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, franchise. the thing in front with it. Yeah. yeah. So, awesome. So, basically, we had the best to get out. We, you know, we thought that, uh, you know, a TV series would be better instead of having a one-shot weekend, and no one's going to want to put the, the, uh, the, the money into advertising and prints, you know, on, on something that is 30 years old. But, um, you know, uh, we're getting renewed interest now after 30 years. Killer Clowns is more popular than ever. And um, there is a possibility. There's something I don't want to keep saying because we've been, you know, we've been teasing, you know, the, the, the fans with this for, for three decades now. And we're tired. Where we're living, it's just that we can't get someone who takes a series. But to put even, you know, a reasonable uh, budget together. Um, we were asked to do it for what we did it for. 30 years ago. And, you know, I, I told them, I said, we could do, you know, for $2 million in 2019 with Academy Award winning special effects artists that are dying to work on it. We got, you know, we got Kim Bailey that would work on it, Gene Rizzoli, we got, you know, Gene Warren, you know, uh, you know from, uh, from Terminator, you know, ready to work on the thing. But, um, you know, they, 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 they said $2 million. So I said, I said, I'll tell you what, you know, for $2 million, we can give you Killer Clown from Outer Space. I said, remember that movie, E.T., you know, that crappy little uh, science fiction movie? Uh, you, know, you know, when the clowns leave, they leave one of their clowns behind. 
And then the clown goes around with a fungal bat and hits people on the head. I said, we could give you that for $2 million in 2019. You know? But they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> All right. Here you go. You get a prize. So ask one more question, Charlie. One, one more. Question. One more for uh, Charlie. The lady right there, I was speaking to you earlier. Yes. yes. Go ahead. Okay, the, the magic question, Charlie. How did you come up with all of this? How did you come up with what? How did you come up with Killer Clowns? What was the what was the inspiration? How did you do it? I mean, some. You know, like, like you know, there's a lot of there's a there's a you know a lot of you know ways things that you, you can pull them out of the air. You can do you know it was just a, a discussion that uh, you know I was having with uh, my brother Stephen. Um, we were just talking about, um, you know, you know, we came out to do stop motion in movies, which was very expensive and time consuming. Uh, uh, so, you know, so an opportunity was offered, um, you know, to do a, uh, a low budget monster movie. And we knew we couldn't do, you know, make Harryhausen stop motion for, you know, a low budget. So we said, let's come up with something. So Stephen said, you know, well, what's the, you know, what's the scariest thing you can think of? And Stephen came up with, he said, driving down a dark road that, uh, uh, and, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, a car pulls up next to you. And when you look out the driver's side window, a nasty, scary clown is leering at you. <laughs> and he said, that would be the most, and we agreed, that would be a very scary thing. And I get, you know, the, you know, ideas that you know, bounce off, all of a sudden, you know, just, it occurred to me, I said, what if the clown wasn't in a car? What if he was floating? And then the next, the, the next thought, I said, he would have to be from outer space. And Stephen said, killer clowns from outer space. It was as simple as that. It was bouncing, it's bouncing an idea, throwing a concept out there and running with it, just going with it. And that's where killer clowns came from. A clown, you know, driving up next to you, not in a car. He has to be from outer space. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Charlie, thank you so very much, partner. And I'll give you a call later on, okay? Yeah, I just wanted the, 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 the fans to know that, you know, that uh, Kim, when he, he made the popcorn gun, and he was going to, he was almost the first victim of the popcorn gun. <laughs> and we were really worried about it because installing the ram, when he fired it for a test thing, it backfired and hit him in the stomach. And we were really worried. So he was almost the first clown victim before the movie was even made. Kim did amazing work on it. That's everyone's favorite prop. And I know he worked on a bunch of other stuff. You know, too much stuff to talk about now. Yeah. Hey, one, can you have time for one more, Charlie? One more really quick one. Who's yeah, I, I, I have all night. I'm just sitting here drawing. Blue jacket, you. What was, Charlie, what is your favorite scene producing overall in Killer Clowns? You know what, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of really, you know, great scenes in terms of horror and effectiveness. I think the Mooney ventriloquist dummy is the, the most horrific, you know, creepy scene. But I think my overall favorite is just in concept and execution. I believe Stephen and Edward uh, agree, um, is the shadow gag. Oh yeah, the shadow gag, that's great. The shadow gag is, is, is an amazingly executed gag, all practical, and that's, you know, it was all practical effects. Gene Warren of, uh, of Fantasy Two, you know, he figured out, he, we made a, a white wall, he photographed it, 
and uh, we took a plate. He matched the uh, the miniature exactly with the pipes and the bricks to the uh, you know to, to the live set, you know, to the uh, the location set. And then I, I fabricated uh, on some foam puppets and wire, very you know, just fat, uh, flat, uh, two dimensional, you know, uh, things. And Justin Cohn stop motion animated them, and uh, I guess this white wall creating. Of a, a black silhouette, and then they used an optical printer. Maybe I, I don't know how many of the, 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 the fans out there know what an optical printer, but they took two pieces of film and put it together, and, you know, and, and dealt and uh, you know played with the uh, the densities of the uh, and the transparency of the image, and made the shadow blend so you could see the wall or slightly through it, and it was that complicated. Uh, and it was a perfect, uh, perfect illusion, illusion of a clown, you know, uh, casting horrific shadows, impossible shadows yeah. on the wall. But that's that's my favorite and, and the director's favorite. Yeah. All right, Charlie, thank you so very much, man. I'll give you a call later. Say we were just gonna say thanks so much from Cult Classics. We're gonna give Charles a big thanks. One, two, three. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's give Kim a big hand.